lights go down and shadows fall. Welcome to a world of mysteries, of conspiracies, of hidden and forgotten knowledge. There's a world more strange, more frightening, and more fascinating than most people ever imagined or dared to contemplate. Your parents, your teachers, never told you the whole story, either out of ignorance or fear. Your politicians may know, but they keep their mouths shut. The door is opening. Throw off your chains and blinders, arm yourselves with the truth, and take a walk along the razor-sharp precipice of the Outer Edge. That's right. Once again, you are listening to The Outer Edge. I'm Tim Swartz. With me tonight is Mike Mott. As always, Mike, say hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. Yay, there you go. <laughs> How are you, so, Hey, I'm doing okay. How about yourself? Pretty good, pretty good. You know, <laughs> anything, anything, anything wild and interesting going on there in the uh, the depths of Lower Mississippi? Yeah, well, actually, central, but that's okay. No, not really. You know, it's it's, uh, it's sort of a quiet and sort of a uh, a depressed environment. You know, it's it's a very poor state, so uh, there's not often a lot going on, and uh, that's just the way it is. Um, hate to say that, but it's the truth. Anyway. <laughs> uh, well, I, I've been following some interesting uh, UFO stories this week, as I'm sure you have as well. Oh, I bet I know what you're going to be t- wanting to talk about. Let's yes. yes. Well, let me think. Here. Let me. Let me. Let me. Let me use my amazing powers of the outer edge deductions. And I bet you're going to be wanting to talk about some slides, maybe alleged. Alien slides? Well, yes, you see, uh, I, it's, it's come to my attention that the Army Corps of Engineers was in the business in the 19, late 1940s of building playgrounds for aliens in the desert southwest. And they built these elaborate uh, water slides, uh, sand slides. Aliens prefer the sand slides because it feels good on their skin. And they tried the water slides, and they tended to melt before they got to the bottom. So they pretty much did away with that. And, of course, that really messed them up for photography. That's why they always look so gooey in a lot of those pictures. So, um, yeah, that's, that's it. Alien Roswell slides. Alien Roswell slides. There you go. <laughs> but well, you know, I- you well, know. you know, I, I've been following this story. It's it's been in, it's been going on for at least a year now, and and I guess that other people have been involved in the situation for three, uh, probably three years now. Um, you know, supposedly they were uncovered. Oh gosh, what five? Maybe at least five years ago, maybe longer than that. And you know, people have been setting on them uh, for a while. Right. Uh, well, you know, I mean, what was his name? Bernard Ray? The yes, yeah. just that allegedly took the photos and then hid them inside the lining of a trunk or something. Um, I have problems with this because, you know, people are saying, well, they have confirmed that this is vintage uh, Kodachrome slide film from 1947 era. Mm-hmm. Well, so what? I mean, because if this film has been kept in a refrigerator, unopened and unexposed... And kept cool, say maybe in the back of, oh, I don't know, a photography store, a photography studio, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. cold storage with other other film. And somebody said, hey, look, we found some old film. Then that film is still going to be good, and they can expose it. Mm-hmm. So even mm-hmm. if it is vintage film from that time period, that does not at all mean that the pictures were taken then. 
they could have been ta- they could have been taken, you know, two years ago. Um, so, you know, it, it's yeah. And then again, the aliens, the so-called alien, from what I can see, from one really low-res image that I saw that I saw leaked on the internet, they look like the, the standard 1970s onward idea of an alien, the, the, the little gray person with the big head. Whereas you know, you know as well as I do that, you know, prior to the 70s, particularly the mid to late 70s, that form did not appear. In most witness encounters and and things of that nature, that's a relatively recent development. Right. And so when I see this old stuff, you know, supposedly old, and it's always a little grays, that to me sends up a red flag that something's not right. Well, but, I seem to, I seem to remember that you know when the the the, the first stories of, about Roswell came out, and and the the, the first stories that involved. Actually, finding you know bodies with with the crash, that uh, the descriptions of the bodies were uh, basically just um, small human beings. I mean, uh, yep. normal normal features. I think uh, uh, they they even had like hair on their heads. Uh, right. Maybe maybe the eyes were a little bit different. Well, they were described uh, as being as being basically like small Asians. Yes. Yes. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, but, but they weren't. Not, they weren't. They weren't totally like us, and they were. They weren't really like you know, literally Asians. There was something mm-hmm. different about them, but they were basically human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but no, but so. none of this, you know, like extra big head with the big eyes, right, or or anything like that, you know. So. Well, I guess though, uh, and and you I I just can't help but think about you know the whole alien autopsy fiasco you know that came out back in the in the 1990s and and you know before the film was actually released to the general public it was the same situation where you you had alleged experts who had examined you know frames from this old 16 millimeter film and said that right. you know, it it appeared to be you know authentic uh, uh, film stock and and all of that and then you had uh, other people coming out and saying that they had remembered seeing uh, uh, this film like years before, right? You know, that being shown to them by you know, say like uh, um, uh, the Air Force or, or people like that, and you know, and we now know that the alien autopsy was just you know, I mean, just a, a, a huge, uh, albeit cleverly uh, produced uh, hoax, right? So you know, it's uh, uh, I, I'm I'm just uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not. I'm not going to be convinced. I mean, even after the supposedly now they are going to release these pictures at a, a big press conference in Mexico sometime in May is what I've heard. Right, right. Well, here's the thing about this. As with so many things like this, there's so much obfuscation, so much confusion, intentional um, shadiness going on, a lot of skullduggery. I know that Nick Redfern has probably written the best uh, evaluations of this so far. I think, and you know, apparently his emails were hacked, and you know this kind of stuff going on, and and you have to ask yourself, okay, who's really behind this? Is it an intel agency? Because who's going to be able to hack his email and a bunch of other people's emails about this and, and get their discussions and stuff? Mm-hmm. It's got to be somebody, you know, who's got some sort of um, has good resources at their disposal. Let's put it that way. Yeah, um, this whole thing smacks to me of disinformation and deception. 
So, you know, that's just, you know, take that for whatever's worth. Yeah, well, and, uh, you know, even if these, um, even if these pictures do look, uh, 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 you know, convincing, I mean, face it, I mean, most, I mean, it's, it's not going to make a single bit of difference. That's right. You know, it, 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 it really isn't. I mean, nobody is going to be, you know, uh, convinced. People who uh, don't mean, believe are still not going to believe. Right, right, right. And and those who want to believe are going to be convinced wholeheartedly. I mean, you know, they'll right. they'll they'll fall right into step and you know and say, oh yeah, you know, this is this is absolutely real. And uh, you know, like like everyone, myself, I mean. Um, they are going to have to come up with the actual physical bodies and then and a crashed spaceship or anything like that for for me to and, and I don't know if I'm ever going to be you know convinced. I hate I hate to put it that way, but right. I mean, there's been there's been so much. You know, right. Well, uh, you're like me. You don't, really, you don't really think that these beings are are from across the galaxy. I mean, I know, I know that I think that this stuff is generally localized to the Earth, and by that I mean the Earth and then the immediate areas around the Earth, maybe the near the near rocky planets and, and bodies. But, you know, it, it seems to have an intense interest in even an origin here in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, uh, it... it, it and you know, I am not going to you know uh, uh, throw out the whole idea of uh, UFOs being extraterrestrial spacecraft. I just don't think uh, you know. I th- I think that you know that is you know a, a possibility, but I don't think it's the only possibility. Right, right. I think that there's probably a number of different things you know all going on at the same I time. I agree, hundred percent. And in fact, yeah. I think that the universe is probably full of of civilizations of various at various stages of development. But I don't think they're coming here. I mean, if they are, it may be a very rare occurrence. You know what I mean? Right. And we may not even recognize them for for what they are when they do show up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> uh, it. Uh, I, I will be interested in uh, in in seeing you yep. know what they what they come out with in in May. Uh, but uh, but once again, I mean, we're just going to be shown a couple of uh, of of blurry. Uh, 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 photographs of, uh, you know, what could be anything. I mean, you have to remember that, um, uh, it, it, there's been a leap of faith taken with these, with these slides because I, nowhere on them was there anything that said, you know, Roswell aliens or, you know, 1947 or anything like that? It's just yeah. a couple of, it was just a couple of slides hidden away in an old trunk that, uh, that shows, uh, uh something, you know, like a, an unusual looking body. I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, you know, it, it could have been pictures taken at a, uh, um, um, you know, like a, a carnival freak show or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those things where it it's the same old song and dance. It's the same old story over and over again. You know, even if these are legitimate photographs, which you know, I strongly doubt that they are. But but <laughs> you know. It's it, it's just like it's just like with the, the the people who keep claiming they find Bigfoot, okay? Oh yeah, <laughs> it's the same thing. It's always a monkey suit filled with something like you know roadkill or something. Yeah. Um. And 
What gets me here is I see that one of the biggest proponents of this latest thing, I'm not, I'm not going to mention the guy's name. I've actually gone off on him on the air before, years back, but it's a guy who used to be a big debunker. Mm-hmm. Big UFO debunker, a real smart ass. You know, he's talking down about people's encounters and, and trying to poo-poo everybody's uh, research. And now he's just, oh, he's just convinced. He's just absolutely convinced that this is legitimate because the film is supposedly filmed from that era. Right. But, you know, anybody with any smidgen, to quote our president, with even a <laughs> smidgen of knowledge about photography would know that, like I said, if, if this film had been kept cold for quite a while, and as long as it's kept cool and, and not exposed to light, you could take it out and use it, you know, 50 years later, 60 right. years later. So right. it doesn't prove anything. All it proves is that somebody had a, might have had a supply of old film, and they took some recent photos, and they staged the whole thing. You have no way to prove, just because it's a vintage time period type of you know uh, slide film that it was taken that the pictures were taken then and there right and so it's, it's just like the bigfoot in the in the freezer type situation. In the freezer. <laughs> yeah in my opinion yeah well well you know like i said it'll it'll be interesting to uh, to see what happens after uh um after these uh, these slides come out, and, I, and I'm still wondering why they're going to do it in in Mexico and not not in the United States. Uh, yeah, there 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 may be an explanation that I haven't run across with, and why that is. But may, we'll we'll talk about that at a different time. So, uh, uh, Mike, uh, we're going to have to go to our break in a few minutes. Why don't you tell us uh, uh, who our guest is tonight? Well, our guest tonight is James Swagger. James dwells in the west of Ireland. He is a prolific researcher and field investigator. Uh, he's actually has an engineering background, which is pretty cool. Uh, physics and astronomy, um, that type of stuff. So he's, he's, uh, very knowledgeable, very intelligent individual. And he has written a number of books on the New Grange mystery and, and megaliths and their acoustics. And, uh, the origins of metallurgy and all kinds of stuff, ancient cartography. Um, so he's visited, you know, hundreds of sites in and across Europe. So, um, he's really an interesting guy. He's come up with some groundbreaking stuff. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him. Cool, cool. And I should mention that, uh, he also, he has a, a show here on uh, the PSN radio network as, uh, as well, Capricorn Radio. That's right. That's right. Okay. And, uh, I think it's also on the Dark Matter Radio Network. Oh, that's right. That's yep. right. So, yeah, so everybody, uh, can, uh, have an opportunity to, uh, to listen to him host his own, uh, show as well. Well, why don't we go to our break then? And, uh, when we come back, uh, we will talk to our guest, James Swagger. You are listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. So stay tuned. We will be right back. I would like to direct this to the distinguished members of the panel. You lousy corksuckers, you have violated my Fargan rights. This Samanambaching country was founded so that the liberties of common patriotic citizens like me could not be taken away by a bunch of Fargan ice holes like yourselves. Thank you very much. <laughs> 
Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions, providing solutions to your Internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology, preventative maintenance and networking support, hardware and custom-built computers. Let Key Information Solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now, 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application, Mobile Talk Radio. Imagine having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. You'll be surprised how easy it is to use. So I think what's going on here is Obama is banking on unemployment falling. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Now you can share the topics that drive the discussions of your favorite talk shows with TalkStream Live's topic-driven talk radio. List and promote real-time talk radio topics or post the topics that you want to hear. Hot topics are tweeted and retweeted and include simple click-to-listen audio links. The future of talk radio is topic-driven talk radio. Available now at TalkStreamLive.com. Roswell, UFOs, Flying Saucers, Alien Abduction, Are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the Internet. You're listening to The Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz, only on PSN Radio. Now, and welcome back to The Outer Edge. I'm Mike Mott. And here with Tim Schwartz, and we're about to bring on our very special guest this week. It is Sunday, February eighth, where I am, and is is Monday, February 9th, where Tim is. So Monday. pretty soon I will catch up with him. I am a time traveler, and we are here with James <laughs> Swagger, our uh, very, very uh, much anticipated guest. James, how are you doing tonight? Hi, Michael. Great to be on the show. Hi, Tim. Great to have you guys here. Well, thank you very much for uh, being with us tonight, James. We really appreciate it. Um, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, guys. So how are things in uh, warm and sunny Ireland? Warm and sunny Ireland, I tell you, it's getting worse here. I mean, we, uh, I thought we were over the worst of the winter, a bit of snow, but it's getting colder again. So we seem to get these cold snaps, a little bit of warm, and then cold snaps. But um, it's okay. I'll be happy when I get a whiskey later. 
There you go. There you go. Yeah, me too. What do you like, Jameson? Uh, I used to when I was younger. Now I'm into the Bushmills because I, I live beside the Bushmills factory. It's the oldest whiskey factory in the world, 1608. Uh, and they have fresh uh, fresh mountain water coming into the, the factory. So it doesn't get any better than that, Michael. <laughs> they make it be jealous, oh. Ah, that sounds that sounds so good. <laughs> the only way it would be better if they actually put the whiskey, plumbed the whiskey straight into the house and they came out of the tap. That's the only way it would be better. But. I'm going to figure out a way to just, just move there. I know I know it gets cold, but still, you know. Bushmills yeah, whiskey is smooth. The Bushmills whiskey is very, very smooth. It's known the world for it. Um, and right, it makes right. Um, I actually haven't had a smoother whiskey, unless you start going into, like, 12, 20-year-olds or something, but just a, a pure, normal whiskey. To be, yeah. that smooth is, to be that smooth is really uh, sophisticated. Right, right. Cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we're glad to oh, have you here, man. Um, I was looking over your, your various uh, books that you sent, and uh, it's just amazing all the stuff that you've been doing and, and researching. And You've been to hundreds of sites all over um, Europe, and uh, especially in, in Ireland. And it's just amazing to me the stuff that you've uncovered. Do you? Um, I guess you think you still just scratched the surface, right? Sure, I'm not finished yet. I'll spend the rest of my days uh, looking at ancient sites. It's just something that um, I guess, guys, I, I just developed over the, the time of becoming an obsession, and now it's becoming a career. <laughs> so it's it's, uh, it's evolving, and and you know the thing is, I, I have been like I say in the book. Uh, Michael and Tim, uh, I say I've been to 400 plus sites, that's probably 500 now, but uh, I've lost count. I, I, and you know, the reason I know that is because it's not just they're like one site and then I go another day to another site. It's These right. sites are in clusters and that's the thing to point out. Um, so all across Ireland, for example, uh, Newgrange, probably one of the most famous passage tombs that I wrote about um, and, and looked into, but equally many, many more. Um, right, but right. it's in a cluster. It's in the Boyne Valley complex. Uh, and basically there's about 30 or 40 there uh, dotted across a 10-mile radius. And then you go to another place inland a bit called Loch Crew, and I wrote about that as well. There probably was 200 at one point in time, and about 50 of those survive in a megalithic complex. Then you go to Carroll Keel and Carroll Moor. They're both situated in, the, in Sligo in, in, the we- in the northwest of Ireland. And uh, they've got, again, clusters of 20 and 30. So when, when you go to these locations, you're going and hitting 20 sites at a time. It might take you a weekend to see it. Uh, for example, I'm going to go to Holland again. I've uh, been there before, but this time I'm going back with the camera, more in-depth research to Drenthe, uh, uh, region in Holland, and they've got like uh, maybe 50, 50 of these passage tombs, these megalithic chambers in right. uh, the Drenthe region. So you're getting them in clusters, and, and what we find all across the whole of uh, northwestern Europe, pre- predominantly from Norway uh, right down to the bottom of Portugal, Spain, um, and from uh, Ireland right to Malta, um, you know, the, the length of Europe, the, the, the the north and south axis of Europe. you got these clusters appearing. Yes, there are random dot- other ones singly dotted around as well, but mostly on the coastline and mostly in clusters. So that'll give you an idea why I've been going to these. Uh, I mean, if you're going to go and research anything, you're going to go to the ones where they're, they're, they're centred first, you know, you go to these clusters first because you get more research done and then it's, it becomes an obsession to fill the joint the dots in between guys. So, and like I say, it's, it's something, something that I, I, I just got into 
Um, really, for all the wrong reasons. Uh, I, I mean, I was working as an engineer and systems analyst. That's where I elevated myself to in my engineering career. And I ended up uh, being in all these very remote places doing wind farms and water treatments. Uh, and I ended up um, just... Uh, you know, could be in very remote places where all these megalithic places are, and uh, I um, ended up, you know, getting to see very, these places and feeling very privileged. Uh, I was privy to some of these ancient structures that you wouldn't just make the journey to. For example, one of the best examples is Callanish Stone Temple in the uh, Outer Hebrides uh, of Scotland. You just wouldn't go there. I mean, where I was living in Lockerbie, famous for the plane crash, uh, I lived in South, uh, South Scotland, in a place called Lockerbie, on the English border, and it used to take me like nine hours to drive these worst roads you've ever seen in your life. And then I'd have to get a ferry for two hours and then another hour drive. That's where I had to go to work, though. You know, and it was, and people just don't go there. And, only, it's, and, and this place is preserved. Right, right. It's preserved and, and for a very good reason. It's very isolated. <laughs> um, but I feel very, very privileged to have seen that on my engineering uh, career uh, vocation uh, and my journey through the British Isles. And I have been to every county in Ireland. I've been to every city in the UK and most of the islands off the coast of Britain. Um, and in that journey then, I've also travelled a few times in and out of Europe and, uh, you know, I, I've, I've hit a very high quantity. I don't know anybody else has done as many uh, passage tombs, that particular type of megalithic monument uh, than myself. So that'll give you an idea of the scale of the research I've been doing. <laughs> well, now, okay, you said that uh, uh, a lot of these places are just, you know, they're, they're well preserved because they're so isolated. Well, why do you think that. Um, uh, they they probably would have been even more isolated uh, uh, back in the days that they were built. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you think then that uh, there was so much activity at these sites? Yeah, well, I mean, even if you look at Ireland today, most of the population is on the east coast, uh, Belfast and Dublin. Uh, yes, there are what we call cities, but they're like large towns to you guys in America. But uh, so it's like two thirds of our population lives in two cities uh, on on the east coast of the island. Mm-hmm. And all the rest is still sparsely populated today, still farming agriculture. So they're preserved literally because of... In Britain, not so much because there's 12 times the population and, and an island twice the size of us. Uh, right. So they're still isolated today. However, I mean, the landscape still look in parts of it in Ireland, looks like it did 5,000 years ago. Um, um, why they were in very remote places, I mean, real estate was was a very, very big thing to these guys. Um, basically, the whole island of Ireland, for, if you want to just focus on that where I'm at, and where I focused a lot of my research, because um, I originated there and uh, I lived there for the research, but just across the whole island, it's riddled with stuff. The particular type of monument that I concentrated on, the passage tomb, uh, is in the northeast and the northwest, but if you want to look at the whole island, there's stone circles and rock art and standing stones across the whole island. It's just dotted everywhere. So it's covering the whole island. Um, Scotland is riddled with the stuff as well, but mostly at the latitude 60 uh, um, from from the bottom of Scotland right to the top, and we wouldn't really expect that to be prime real estate, and certainly not in mountainous regions as well. Um, but... If you want to focus on Scotland, there's a very good answer for you guys there. I mean, the moon does something very, very, sim- uh, very, very cunning or very 
very illustrious at that latitude, uh, at these latitudes, because um, because it's so far north, uh, it's latitude 60, something like that, in Cape Colonies, for example, the moon seems to bob a de- uh, on the horizon, uh, like uh, it, when, it's, uh, when it's on its lunar sa- standstill, uh, this 18.6 year cycle, uh, the metonic cycle, um, it seems to bob along the mountains on the horizon and then just stop and sit there and sets. And they lined this monument to this, uh, like crosshairs of a, of a gun. Um, and they have a little, a little cross with two ho- uh, portal stones, and, and they have lined the moon at its solstice stands, or at its, not, uh, at its lunar standstill. So, so as a result, as a result they have a highly sophisticated Masonic uh, calendar encoded into that monument. So do you think that this is, I mean, is this as accurate today as it was then? Oh yeah, I mean, you won't see this uh, repeat until every um, 18.6 years, so, I mean, it, it's still going on today. The, the last one was 2006, you're going to have to wait till 2023 20, 20, to see this again. Um, and it was videotaped um, in 2006. Now, just to give you an idea, I mean, just break down what these megalithic guys did. They, they tracked the motion of the sun with solstices and equinoxes and broke it up to four points of the year. Um, that may seem obvious to us, dead midwinter, midsummer, and spring and autumn uh, equinox. Uh, and then they broke that down into a further halfway point again, which in the old ke- survives in the Celtic calendar of uh, Lunasa, um, 2nd of 3rd of August, uh, uh, Halloween, what we now know as Halloween, or Samhain in Irish, uh, yeah. it's, uh, the, which was originally about the 3rd of November, now bastardized into uh, some kind of commercial holiday uh, on the fir- 31st of October but uh, right. we have another one, another one on Imbolc which is the 3rd of February and then uh, we have the, what's known as in common as May Day or Beltane um, and Beltane is, uh, is the name for the month of May in Irish as is Sowan uh, the name for the, the month of uh, November so they have even survived in the monthly names today um, so these right. This eight-day eight, uh, eight solar calendar um, was one form of calendar they had. They probably broke it down further again into 16 months, usable, uh, tangible months. And we have evidence of that in, in calendars going back 3500 uh, BC. We have a 16-ray solar calendar linked with a metonic calendar. Now, Solar calendars breaking the down into solstices might seem okay, and that's that's easy enough. There's a bit of work involved, but that's easily attainable. But to be working out metonic cycles uh, with sidereal and synodic lunar months, there's two of these months are 27.3 days and 29 and a half days. Now we use the 29 and a half day because. Uh, it's the real month, if you want to call it that. The other one is just as real. It just it's it's an astronomical month, uh, but because we move on a rotational axis, as well as the moon moving as well around the, the Earth, we have to wait for it to come back to the same point, uh, and we have to add on a little bit to that. So one's an apparent m- month, and one is a real month. Um, so basically, both are the same. It's you choose your point of reference. Do you want to use the backdrop of the stars, or do you want to use the backdrop of the moon uh, as a reference point? But these guys use both of these lunar months. We know this. This is encoded in the monuments, too. Um, this is all in the book. And I, when you see that they're breaking down the lunar cycle to such accuracy, uh, these guys had a deep knowledge of the lunar cycle. Put it like this, guys. If you had a 
two mountains and uh, you put your passage to him up there and you're aligning stuff and let's say you notice the moon drop down in between two mountain peaks uh, on a moon set in the morning time or something like that. You come back 18.6 years later, that moon will be in the exact same position doing the exact same thing. In other words, it takes 18.6 years for that moon cycle to repeat itself exactly. So you can right. take the moon anywhere on the horizon at any moment in time. You will wait 18.6 years and you'll come back and it'll be doing the exact same thing. Now, that's, that's really, I mean, when you consider the life expectancy was only considered to be 40 years. Right, uh, exactly. So, to, but to come back to your point, I mean, they, they track the, the, the lunar cycles and, and the solar cycles, as well as the stars. A lot of uh, monuments in the north of Ireland that I'm focusing on now are called court tombs, a new type of tomb and megalithic monument. These all seem to be aligned to north-south axis. Now, that rules out the sun and the moon because they're equatorial um, aligned. Northeast, northwest, east and west, southeast, southwest. Right. Um, but to, to be aligning stuff to the north, that either tells you it's the North Star or constellations. So um, we do have constellations rock art as well. I mean, these guys were sophisticated astronomers. This is why they built these monuments. They didn't care where they went to do this. I mean, we have monuments up as far as uh, latitude 70 nearly up in northern Norway. Uh, and as far south as some of the islands off the coast of Africa in the Azores out that way, um, right. Tenerife, Tenerife and stuff like that. And we have rock art in Tenerife exactly the same as the megalithic rock art in the north of Ireland, um, identical. So we, they were down as far as latitude 33 degrees and up as far as latitude 70. That's like half the northern hemisphere. So, so which ancient culture... Even prehistoric culture, do you think is was behind? What was the basis of the commonality here? Was there an ancient culture that did this? Partly why, uh, partly why I looked into the maps, uh, Michael, and then you, I know you, I gave you a copy of the the origins of uh, map making and cartography, right. and partly why I looked into that because I believe there was a global commonality or a global common source. Um, do we say the mythical island of Atlantis as a commonality? I mean, it's, it seems like an, an easy one to start with. They even right. talk about the high Brazil, the other Atlantis off the coast of Ireland, and I looked into that as well. I, I, I believe there's a sunken landmass there proved geologically, and that's my best guess for an or origins of this uh, common culture. But right. they are at least what we should call a culture, a megalithic culture. But they were most likely a civilization. Now we think civilization today as as the Romans and empires and uh, you know uh, technology and stuff and massive buildings. But um, these guys had a civilization. They were a civilization. Um, they probably dominated as as much terrain. Um, might be more terrain than, than the Romans did. Um, mm. The only thing is, they didn't leave massive structures. You see passage tombs dotted all across, uh, from Portugal, uh, Spain, France and Brittany, uh, Holland, um, Denmark, uh, Norway, Sweden, um, Scotland, England, Wales, Ireland. I mean, these, these tombs are, are, are riddled everywhere. Then we have the Stone Circle, they're riddled everywhere. Um, the dolmen, for example, there isn't a continent that the dolmen isn't on. Um, right. Found in India, Russia, um, uh, Middle East, in Jordan, Israel. 
um, and, and most commonly in Ireland and, and Scotland, England, and Wales. Um, so these megalithic monuments, they're iconic, and they're the same type of. It's like the same company, guys. Uh, same building companies in here doing the same thing in all these different terrains. Then we but, have linked the rock art as well to tie it in. Right. So do you? Th- but do you not think that there is a connection to some of the those that built some gigantic structures like uh, the like the stones at Belbeck and and uh, you know some of the uh, the huge megalithic structures in Central and South America? Do you not see any commonality there? Not not in building design, but I do think in some sort of an ideology, yes, and in that respect, I think that these guys might have been spin-off clans or cultures like that, um, whereas right, um, they may have all had a common source originally, and they may have just got on boats and just fled in a cataclysm and just sent up and then ended up as pockets of... Uh, um, Pockets of source right. material again, and the new seed, if you will, with uh, even Refuge, with, refugees, so to speak. Refugees, yeah, and you know what else? I think, guys. I think even within the megalithic culture itself, I think there was different uh, sections there because I'm not entirely sure that the megalithic henges, these circular earthworks, um, encoded with sophisticated geometry and mathematics, and again the solstices and all the alignments as well. Um, I actually never found them very exciting when I got into this research and started. I never thought I would be researching them. And I now think they're some of the most enigmatic structures that the megalithic culture left us. Um, but I do think that this civilization, there was perhaps two different groups, at least two different groups in the megalithic civilization um, that may be amalgamated. Um, I do think that uh, they are classed as Nephilim architecture. Look at Stonehenge, for example. That's probably the best iconic megalithic monument we have. Everybody who's here at Stonehenge, I think that's Nephilim architecture. You look at the works of L.A. Marzulli, and I know we spoke about this before, Michael. Um, I found a numerology numerology codex encoded in these monuments of of Europe. I'm still working on writing that up at the moment. Uh, This Geometria Codex, it's, it's there. So, yes, the answer is I think these are... Nephilim architecture. Um, I think these are definitely um, same as same people, same company. Yes, but I mean, a spin-off. Were they talking to each other? No. I think the megalithic culture in itself, that's in Western Europe, what we define as megalithic. I mean, if you ask somebody from Europe what a megalithic monument is, we think stones, stone circles passage tombs, megalithic people of Britain, Ireland, and Western Europe. We don't really class uh, in, in identity the, the Baalbek or Egypt. Uh, yes, they are megalithic cyclopean structures, but we don't refer to them as the megalithic civilization, so we have to kind of make that um, difference there, because right, it's right. such a brand. It's actually, you've got to understand, guys, it's such a brand that these guys had. I mean, the, the stone circle, the stone row, the rock art, um, the henge, the dolmen, the Passage Tomb, the Longborough, you know, they, they, these guys built many, many, many examples of these structures repeatedly all across northwestern Europe. So it's like their brands kind of dominated that region of the globe. However, yes, there was many megaliths. I mean, I've been to Peru. Uh, um, I, do so, I do see those more as more sophisticated, more high-tech um, um, and examples of Nephilim architecture, but I don't think the same group. Uh, I think there may be a spin-off, if you want to call it that. Hmm. Well, now, what uh, uh, what time period uh, would you say that uh, uh, we're we're looking at for uh, the the megalithic civilization? 
sure. Good question, uh, Tim. It's actually a uh, two double answer. There's, there's, there's two main time frames. Uh, some of the earliest megalithic structures in, in Europe is this located at a place called Carl Moore in Ireland. I actually didn't focus on Carl Moore in the New Grain Serious Mystery because there wasn't any rock art there. And my approach was to take on the rock art and the passage tomb and develop a cosmology. I needed both. Um, sometimes... Uh, I didn't have the rock art like Carol Keel, but I had a lot of uh, other stuff there. Um, Carol Moore, by the way, is dated, we have two carbon dates to 5400 BC and 4800 BC. Um, so, deep antiquity. Setting that aside, there's a ju massive jump like of something like 15 to 1500 to 2000 years, and we don't have anything in between. And then we have the same resurgence of these monuments, again, in Sligo, at Carol Keel. So we have a 2,000 year gap there, guys. And then the megalithic monuments start up again. Um, uh, so we have this 3,500 to 3,000 BC, this 500 year window, where this is the main window where most of the megalithic stuff of, of Europe was built. Uh, Gavrinus, uh, the most decorated passage tomb there is. We put Gavrini, uh, we say Gavrinus in English, they say Gavrini in French, uh, in the island of Brittany. It's showing mathematical waveforms carved into granite slabs. It's, it's, it, every slab, upright slab that makes the walls of this chamber is carved with constructive and destructive interference patterns and mathematics. And it's the most beautiful rock art in the whole of Europe. Um, and it's dated 3500 BC. So between there and 3000 BC, we see a massive explosion of megalithic monuments all across Europe. But some of the earliest ones are in Ireland, and we even have a megalithic city. We have a megalithic city buried on the west coast of Ireland under a, a, a mud layer, perhaps from a cataclysm. So what we may have, and this is what I think now, and I'm becoming to become aware of that, there may have been uh, cataclysms or minor cataclysms or, or rising sea levels. And these guys will have just set up camp again. Um, they may have come in waves as opposed to one. We don't see them all originating in one location. This is the point to make out. There's, there's, a, ta there's a time frame issue, and then there's a location issue. So we don't know where, what time frame to put these guys in. If you say megalithic monument to somebody in Europe, they're going to just say 3000 BC is a standard answer. It's like a default answer they give you because the majority of the monuments are always 3000 BC. And they, even when they don't have bones or artifacts to carbon date, they'll just give you a 3000 BC answer. That's for the hinges, that's for the dolmens, that's for the magnetic chambers. Um, but there are stuff going back early now. For Brittany, for example, we have one or two examples definitely carbonated to 4800 BC. So we know these guys were in existence for at least... Um, that 2,000 year window and then they, the last of the megalithic monuments died out about 1,000 BC so the whole existence 4,000 years these guys were dominating the landscape for 4,000 years um, but again we don't see uh, from what I see anyway and, and I've researched this from a, a lot of different angles from archaeology from acoustics from uh, henges uh, geometry um, archaeology uh, I looked at it from as many different angles. Um, I don't see anything coming from the same source. I don't see it's all originating in one location and spreading. Think civilizations, think the Romans. They started in Rome and they, they spread outwards from that epicenter. Um, we don't see an epicenter of the megalithic civilization. What we see is pockets spreading out, localized. And, and that tells you then... Um, I think they were refugee by boats. This is why I have the refugee by boats theory where these, uh, these guys fled uh, an island, perhaps somewhere, 
and hit the west uh, uh, Western Europe. They hit the coastline of Western Europe. That's why these guys were on the coastline. They navigated by waterways. We know that they were on boats because they had to get from Scotland to Ireland to transfer the knowledge at the very least, uh, or else a common source that ended up in both places. So mm-hmm. they were migrating across water, their, their, their concepts. So they were at least navigating the seaways. We know that. Um, and that, that, uh, that's for all the islands uh, across uh, Europe. So I think a commonality, yes. A common location, yes. Um, and a time frame, 5000 BC and beyond. We, we even have a sunken stone circle off the coast of Scotland. Um, when that was there above seawater, it's, it's, it's hard to tell. Um, the research hasn't been done on that yet. But uh, we have another place, uh, uh, an island not far from Gavrini. Gavrini means uh, Goat's Island in French. (coughs) Excuse me. And uh, another island just across from that, there's a stone circle on that island. And half the stone circle is in the water and the other half is inland. Um, And it's probably 8,000 years old. That's when the sea level was down further enough. So, um, I mean, these, these seems to be... A series of uh, waves of building uh, these monuments across Europe. Right, right. Well, going further afield, what do you think about something like, for instance, the Yonaguni uh, monument? Do you think that that's actually a megalithic site or a natural mm-hmm. structure? Um, really, really fascinating. This one, uh, Yonaguni. Um, I actually think it's it's man-made. I think it may have been art, uh, uh, artificially shaped uh, natural feature. They, right. they may work the natural uh, cracks in the rock or you know the natural topography of the the coastline. Um, because it, it, look at the megalithic chambers of uh, Carroll Keel, for example. It's a limestone plateau, and it naturally fractures into slabs. I mean, if you're a builder, or, or you're going to work with the natural material. You're not going to work against it. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, Yonaguni is a bit like that as well, the way it fractures itself on land. That's the very reason they te- say it's natural, um, Dr. Robert Shock. And I have had Shock on the show a couple of times, and, and I respect him. I can understand why he thinks that. Um, but there has been research done since. Uh, they, they keep diving that place, and the more times they dive, I mean... It looks like there's a carved face down there, and then there's pillars and there's features there that I just can't. I can't agree with it being natural. I think there may have been a natural uh, bedrock that was carved into. Um, it may have been a port side. Uh, it may have been a port side with natural steps just uh, hewn from the rock. I mean, we do that ourselves today uh, yeah. in harbors. So um, that's what I like to think. I think it's a bit of both, but I definitely think there's man-made features there without a doubt. Hmm. Well, now, um, have you have you run across any examples then of um, structures that may have uh, uh, preceded uh, the megalithic civilization? You know, something that you could look at and say, you know, this this probably came from before that time. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, like I say, when we talk about the megalithic civilization of Western Europe or the megalithic culture, we're talking the Stonehenge builders, or we're talking the Newgrange builders, or we're talking the Gavrini builders, or the the Karnak builders. Um, So that's that's one grouping, a a culture. But before that, um, we have megalithic monuments. Quebecli Tepe is probably the biggest, probably most hot little potato on the planet at the moment. It's getting a lot of attention. But we also have... uh, the, the Armenian Stonehenge, known as Karahunj, um, and it's about 7,000 BC, I believe. 
Now, that doesn't make sense to us because it's the same type of monument, but it's not related in time. It's in a strange part of the globe compared to the rest of northwestern Europe. Um, it's got wonderful um, uh, megalithic stone rows and circles, and it's even got holes drilled through the stones as well. Um, so, <coughs> excuse me. So, Karahunj definitely, uh, Quebecli Tepe definitely too. Um, I mean, not even, I mean, Gebekli Tepe is something like 7,000 years before uh, Stonehenge. So, the accepted date for Stonehenge anyway. Karahunj is some 4,000. So, they're not even near us in time uh, to the megalithic culture, but they seem to be an original source. Um, Is there any reason for that? Is there a lineage? Well, 2,000 years is a long time to try and link up uh, two different sites. However, we're doing that in Ireland, like I mentioned to you. We have Carroll Moor and Carroll Keel, almost separated by 1,800 years. Um, but they're the exact same iconic building styles. Um, you know, they're actually just the same style, same company, same style. A, a chamber with a dolmen in the centre of it, with a, in alignment to this solstice. Um, you know, why is this? Why, why is there such a, a period of uh, uh, time elapsing in between these megalithic explosions of culture? Hmm. All right. Well, uh, uh, James, uh, Mike, why don't we? Uh, it, it's time for us to go to our break. So why don't we go ahead and do that, and uh, then we'll uh, uh, we'll be right back to continue our conversation with uh, James Swagger, uh, the author of the New Grange Serious Mystery and. And others, of course. <laughs> so you're listening. Yeah, you're listening to uh, uh, the Outer Edge uh, on the PSN Radio Network, and we will be right back. I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! (gasps) It's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. 
You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! <gasps> it's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Whoa. The moment my son saw a redwood tree. It's huge! Is the moment I knew that for him. You can't even see the top of that thing! Even the sky has no limit. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. Your moment is out there. Find it at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Go down and shadows fall. Welcome to a world of mysteries, of conspiracies, of hidden and forgotten knowledge. There's a world more strange, more frightening, and more fascinating than most people ever imagined or dared to contemplate. Your parents, your teachers, never told you the whole story, either out of ignorance or fear. Your politicians may know, but they keep their mouths shut. The door is open. Throw off your chains and blinders, arm yourselves with the truth, and take a walk along the razor-sharp precipice of the Outer Edge. The Outer Edge. I'm Tim Swartz with Mike Mott and our very special guest, James Swagger. Uh, now, James, uh, before we left on our break, we were talking about um, uh, 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 predecessors to uh, uh, the, the the megalithic uh, uh, civilization, and uh, you know, you mentioned uh, some. Um, uh, uh, Oh gosh! What's 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 the name of the one in, in Turkey? Karhuns in Armenia and Gebekli Tepe in Turkey. That's right. That's right. Yeah, uh, the one the one in Turkey is uh, um, um, uh, very uh, uh, big in the news right now, and right. I mean, they're saying they're saying that uh, I mean that one is probably like one of the oldest. Um, examples of uh, uh, civilization that they found in a long time. Oh, undoubtedly. Uh, I mean, 10,000 BC uh, is a rough date, although some people want to get a bit more accurate with the dating and that. But for me, uh, when you go back that far, it's like, okay, I think 10,000 BC will do. It's a nice age date, and it's, and it's, uh, and it's a date for, the, it's for that complex as well, which is bizarre because you don't expect people to be doing things like that in an ice age. But, uh, um, yeah, we've had a few, we've had a few anomalous stuff turn up like that. Um, again, Yonaguni was probably about 10,000 BC as well, the last time, right, right. Maybe, maybe 15,000, who knows, the last time that was above water. Um, go to, uh, uh, Bolivia and, uh, the, at, at, is it the Atacana Pyramid, uh, the, Tiwanaku, I uh, can't remember the name of the step uh, platform there, um, but uh, the, the building monument at Tiwanaku, 
uh, Arthur Poznanski spent 50, some 50 years there. He was a, he was an expert because he, he was a Polish engineer. He spent 50 years there. He, if anybody did that place, it was him. And he realized that there were solstice, uh, again, this is megalithic by definition, um, and I hate to mm-hmm. do the semantics thing with the megalithic of Europe, but I mean, that's what it means to us over there. But it was megalithic construction. It had alignments to solstices. Um, and the solstices were off, um, because the, the the tilt of the earth changes over long periods of time. And he did a quick calculation. Now, of course, he was using compasses and strings in his day. Um, we're going back like 40-something years here until uh, the 1940s or something. But um, from his measurements and his best guess at that time, um, he said that Tiwanaku, because of the, the tilt of the earth, you're able to calculate when it was truly aligned. Now, we would have a solstice... Uh, aligned to dead center and the, and the summer and uh, winter equinox or summer uh, solstice and, and uh, winter solstice uh, along with the equinoxes four four days for alignment to say exactly when this triangular uh, window was uh, this triangular geometrical uh, window overlaying the pyramid uh, matches up perfectly um, it was about seventy thousand years so mm-hmm. at best guess that may have been less than that only because of measurements of the uh of the tilt of the year now you're talking something called the obliquity of the ecliptic and that'll come back into the map so i'm going to talk about the maps in a second because that kind of thinks it links in with the megalithic culture of europe as well but uh the obliquity of the ecliptic and again we have procession of the equinox this wobble in the earth but there's also the obliquity of the ecliptic this is the tilt of the earth changing as well so we have a wobble in the earth and we have the tilt of the earth so there's, there's two things affecting there um and it, it's incredibly complex once you go into all this but the obliquity of the ecliptic might change every forty thousand years and the precessional cycle changes every uh some twenty six thousand just under twenty six thousand years at the best known rates and the best guesses and the best math that we have um so we can use this 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 long cycle um especially at megalithic monuments when they're astronomically aligned. Some people say that archaeoastronomy, the measurements uh, of archaeology and astronomy together, when a building is aligned to an astronomical event, uh, whether that's a solstice or an equinox, and it changes over period, we can calculate when uh, that monument is aligned. And we, they reckon it's more accurate than archaeology on its own. Um, I mean, even Tiwanaku, uh, for example, they, they, go, they dug up some pottery there, and they said, well, it's the carbon date is some stuff that they dug up and they presumed that that was when it was built however that's just when the stuff was buried that doesn't mean that the people who built uh tionac was the same people as that, that buried some pottery and bits of uh stuff in the ground um i mean a lot of these cultures in south america inherited these monuments so there's always a dating problem but the astronomical dating uh method is incredibly sophisticated and um, I, I tend to really uh, go with the, at least the Ice Age uh, for Tiwanaku and there's even Ice Age animals drawn in one of the, the gateway of the, the, the sun there at Tiwanaku as well. Um, mm. And that's just to tie it in with Gebekli Tepe. So we have Gebekli Tepe in Turkey in the Middle East and 15 miles from the Iraq border. Um, uh, again, we have the cultivation of wheat, uh, the, the einkorn was grown there, um, or, or developed there, genetically modified uh, einkorn. Um, the same as up in the Andes, the genetically modified fruit up there. So, it seems to be commonalities across, to, across the continent. Um, 
so we, we have stuff in deep antiquity, um, and if you want to come into the safe zone of about 5,000 BC to, to 1,000 BC in, in Europe, um, seemed to be that the, the, the chosen method for building was, was heavy stone, uh, if you want to call it that, and encoding in your heavy stone monuments astronomy. There's something like 90% of the monuments before 1500 BC have astronomical uh, events encoded into them. Just pause for that a moment. Like 95, 90 to 95% of the monuments before 1500 BC are astronomically aligned. So it seems makes sense to use astronomy to figure these things out. Um, another area that I looked at, um, we have legends of high Brazil and Atlantis, and, and I looked at this, uh, they say in the old ancient tales of Ireland, uh, in Gaelic accounts going back to at least, we know, the 7th century uh, AD, that were wrote down from the Celts who inherited the megalithic monuments, um, <coughs> excuse me, that these guys were um, uh, talking about a mythical island that would appear in the clouds and then in the mists of the sea and then disappear again, um, as if it was a misty place. And, and it is like that off the coast of Ireland. It's such a rainy, misty area that there may have been an island complex out there, or archipelago, now, now gone. However... I, I said if there was anything credible to this it would be there and I, and I looked underneath the water for this and I looked up the records that we have and geological sandbanks that we have and there is a geological sandbank there known as uh, Porcupine Bank and they call it Porcupine Bank because the profile of it looks like the back of a porcupine uh, mm-hmm. so this sandbank is in the shape of a porcupine and there's a massive like uh, sandbank ridge going around the course it's called the Rockwall Trench and it's off the, the northwest and the, and the southwest of Ireland. <coughs> so this sandbank uh, has this little anomaly on it, this uh, raised uh, indentation on it, and it's, a, it's, it's an island. It's a sunken island. It was been above the water, um, probably safely 7,000 BC, pushing it to 5,000 BC, I don't know. Um, but it is at about the size of uh, London, 20-mile radius. The curious thing is, we do have ancient maps showing this island known as High Brazil. That's H-Y space B-R-A-S-I-L. Uh, so right, Brazil, with, right. Brazil with an S, not with a Z. And that's actually, uh, it still survives in the Gaelic name, our clan, E-Brazil, E-U-I, uh, it's pronounced the same, uh, Brazil, like the, the clan Brazil or, or, or the clan Brazil, if you want to call it in English. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, well, and the, 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 well, yeah. Well, this, sorry, just to tie in the, this high result. I've been as uh, I've I've seen globes in the in the Globe Museum in uh, in Austria and Vienna. Um, it was showing Mercator's globe, fifteenth uh, century, and it's got High Brazil on it. I've got photographs of that, and there's Mercator's map. Uh, there's so many maps showing the the uh, island of High Brazil just off the coast of Cork in Ireland, in the same location as the geological sandbank. Um, they even sent expeditions looking for High Brazil in the eighteenth century in the British ships from uh, Bristol looking for this uh, mythical island because it was on maps from the 15th century. But these maps were made from older source maps. And then that told me, well, if these guys were a megalithic culture navigating by boat, fleeing at a uh, sunken landmass, looking and hitting the most, choose the most natural landing bay you're going to hit is Sligo Bay and the Gulf of Moraban, both where 
the megalithic hotspots are. I mean, there's 5,000 archaeological sites in Sligo alone dating to that time period, and there's, there's equally the same in Brittany and France in Karnak and the Gulf of Moraban. Two natural landing bays, natural harbours where you would land. You would sail that coastline looking for a natural bay. And that's what we find. We find these two megalithic hotspots located in this... In this yeah, I, I wanted to ask you something about that. I mean, you were talking about High Brazil. Is there a connection between that and Ternanog? Yeah, you know, uh, Ternanog, again, a mythical place, uh, the land of the young. Um, right. However, Og, like we discussed, I think, Michael, Og is another name for a giant. Right. Where the giants, right. Where the giants living in Longevity. Um um, some of these uh, some of these megalithic monuments even have uh, some sort of tree panning uh, elongated skulls found at them as well so this is why I do tie in the Nephilim architecture I'm very very slow to come around but uh, this is only recent for me Michael that could have been in the same general location as High Brussels I mean it, it supposedly was in that you know out, out in the western sea right Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and, and uh, we even have these. Uh, so we have geological data, um, uh, and we have maps, uh, cartography data, uh, both scientifically verifiable, um, and both hitting the same location. But we also have mythological tales of the Tua de Danon, um, who then spills into this Tiernan Oak tale. And the Tua de Danon right. were said to have come from the Western Sea. So there is a mythological uh, liter- literature. Uh, um, encoded in, in books from the Book of Invasions and the Book of Leinster, uh, going back at least to 7th century AD, wrote down from Gaelic tales and Gaelic uh, accounts of the Celts, who came to Ireland at the very earliest, 1500 BC, but the megalithic builders died out 1000 BC, so they overlapped these megalithic guys for about 500 years. Very, very famous megalithic monument, uh, called Noth, uh, very, very complex. Uh, the whole Newgrange and Noth complex is probably the most complex megalithic site in the world. Noth has the longest passageways of any chambered mound in Europe, uh, some uh, 40 metres, I think it is, um, which is about uh, 100 feet long. Uh, two of them, one to the east and one to the west, the eastern side and western side. And this is the, what we call a lunar temple because it encodes the sidereal synodic lunar month, the metonic cycle. Even the number of curb stones count uh, and link to a metonic cycle as well. Everything they did, it's got art all around it showing astronomical calculations. Um, some people even think there's a, they're showing the magnetic field of the Earth being uh, blasted by a solar cataclysm. I mean, the, the art is really sophisticated. So setting this all aside, what we have is uh, no being inherited by the Celts, and we know that they actually overtook this monument when the megalithic builders disappeared. So note is a monument... Um, dated typically to 3000 BC, but we know from carbon dating of the layering of material that they stripped acres of fine grass. Now, when we say acres, I mean they literally grew like lawns and then rolled them all up and then layered the mound, put some soil and then layered it with, with, with turf again and then put some uh, loose stones and loose fill material and they put a layer cake of this to, to layer the mounds. It wasn't just backfilled in with any old material. These are very, very sophisticated right. mounds with layering process. And we know that the, the layering process is going back 4000 BC. However, the well, Celts, you know, well, you know. the Celts, sorry, just to finish on the Celts, the Celts did inherit this monument 
um, as our best example of the tie-in between the Celts and the megalithic people. Of course, right, the Celts right. still survive today with their written languages, and, and the accounts that were written down were from old Celtic tales. So there is a lineage going back um, through literature, through the Celts, to the megalithic people, um, and, 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 and that's what we have, that these two of the Danan, these uh, mythical gods right, right. who came from high Brazil, coming from the Western Seas, Michael. Um, that's what they said, they came from the Western Seas. Well, they said, they, some people, uh, one account says they came from the sky, and the other one on a black cloud, and the other one says that they came from the seas. So, Well, you know, it, it's interesting because they, they also, the Tuatha de, de Danan, they're, they're, they're more or less synonymous with the Nephilim because they in a lot of ways, which I'm not going to go into right now, but they became the fairy people of Ireland. They became associated with these these knolls and and howes and all these um, um, these fairy hills and things of that nature. And I think that's probably because they built these structures. Do you think that they they are still associated with those structures in any way? Is there UFO activity or strange phenomena that are associated with these these sites? I discovered something recently, uh, just from another author uh, who actually lives in Sligo, um, lovely guy, and uh, he said to me that the Knocknaray uh, megalithic mound, um, no known ends to this yet, it's probably still concealed and waiting to be dug up. Uh, it would be like finding King Tut's tomb if they ever got their ass in gear uh, and dug this thing up, but they don't do that. They just leave these things decaying and I won't dig them up. It's, it's beyond. They just believe there's no chamber and it's not worth digging these mounds up. Um, so, but there's strange, what well, it's like it's an Argon generator, strange clouds form and appear over uh, Knocknaray Mountain, right over this megalithic mountain. But to what, you can see this megalithic mountain 20 miles away, that's how big this thing is. Right. Uh, um, and they say that Queen Maeve, one of the two, two of the Delan uh, gods, was buried in there. Um, so, you know, it, it, this well, sounds you know, like, what is stuff, but it's... Sure. It's it's all there in the record, and, and and another thing is that they even say the two of the nan were like shining ones. They had a shine off them, like a glow off them, um, like some other uh, accounts of the nephilim as well. So there seems to be some sort of a parallel there, at least in anecdotal connotations. Uh, Michael, well, the common people of Ireland for centuries will not tamper with the mounds. Oh no, no, I mean, it, it's taboo. Um, still today, still today, there's yeah. a lot of respect there. I mean, they yeah. say very, very, uh, they would see that as extremely surreptitious activity if you did that. And, 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 very dangerous, very dangerous, supposedly. Dangerous uh, for the house. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the funny thing is, in the way I said there was two groups, because even when we go back to our ancient Gaelic records, um, and these, the Book of Invasions taking of Ireland, there was five groups. There was, let me get this right, there was the Fomorians. And the two of the Danan, the Fairbog, the Malaysians, and uh, I can't remember the Sons of Noah. I can't remember what their group was called. But uh, there was these five groups who settled Ireland. And this is why I think that the megalithic chambers and the were one group and the megalithic um, henges were another group because we know from the Book of Invasions that these five groups all fought each other in succession. And the two of the Danan battled with each, uh, with each, some of these groups eventually, uh, being, uh, subdued. But one group was the Fair Bow, the men of renown. Again, that, that phrase you probably know from biblical sources, when there was even references to giants, a group of 20,000 giants who lived on the island of Tory to even give the number of giants and they give the location. Tory, by the way, is, uh, off the coast of Donegal. It's about 
It's a good bit off. It's a, it's a smallish island off the coast of Donegal. Uh, you can still get a, a ferry to it today. Um, but there's strange T-shaped pillars and megaliths over there too. So did some of the giants uh, build these large cyclopean megalithic mounds and, and some of the more geometrical, fanciful stuff for chambers? I don't know. It seems to be several groups of people interacting with each other in, in the mythological uh accounts um, from the Gaelic literature, but it may explain why we have um, different uh, cultures maybe merging into some sort of a megalithic uh, superculture. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a strange, it, it's strange, we have all these different accounts and all these different sources to, to work upon. Um, I do think, though, that uh, they came in on boats and they hit them, the, I, I like to think that anyway. Um, it's certainly, uh, certainly hasn't been addressed by, the, by archaeology. They think they lived on the coastline because they had a rich source of food to build their monuments, but that just doesn't make sense because we had the monuments inland as well. Um, right, it right. to be that they came by sea, landed on the islands. I mean, we're talking the Outer Hebrides, the Inner Hebrides, uh, Orkneys, uh, all around Scottish Shiles, uh, northwest, northeast. It seems to be they even navigated inland rivers as well. So, um... I think definitely these guys came from a source land, um, call it high Brazil, if you will, for a, for a better term, but it may have been a number of islands off the, off the, in the Atlantic, down as far as the Azores as well, uh, the sunken stuff down there too. So I think maybe from the Azores right up to uh, the sunken island of high Brazil, then where would you naturally go? You would go in all directions. Hopefully yeah, you knew... Yeah. Hopefully you knew to go east towards Europe <laughs> rather than take the bigger journey to America. Hopefully you had that bit figured out, but uh, because you've less of a journey. But I mean, it, it, you would migrating from northeast to northwest, you would hit like Brittany, Ireland, and Scotland. And this is this at a megalithic hotspots. But but how does this? Uh, I was going to say, how does this tie into the the uh, the acoustic stuff that you discovered? Well. What I found myself doing was looking at the astronomy first because uh, somebody asked me a question, a fellow engineer, and, and I had been absent from Ireland for 10 years. I uh, still visited family, but I mean, I mean, living uh, there. So in the absence, I had been all around Britain and Europe and uh, working as a traveling engineer, uh, going to where I had to go for work, uh, mostly remote locations, like I explained. And uh, I was just back home and somebody asked me the right question at the right time and I didn't know the answer. And when somebody asked me, I either Google it or I'll, I'll write it down, and, and I don't like not knowing information, and especially if it's about my own homeland. And I looked up it up, and it was about a constellation piece of rock art. And then, because I had a wealth of these places to draw upon as a source material, I mean, most times when I, when in my early 20s, when I went to visit, I've been looking at these places for 15, 20 plus years, but granted, the first five to eight years was just goofing off these monuments, just going, having a look, uh, that's interesting, and appreciating it, but not really doing anything with it. Um, but he asked me a very pertinent question and I just found it really deeply interesting I went and looked it up and I found there was mixed sources on it and, I, and a few uh, mistakes in the, in, the, in the astronomy calculations and I had just done a physics with astronomy degree um, and to make a career change not necessarily in any particular direction but just to get out of engineering and then I found myself immersed in this megalithic saga 
trying to figure it out. Like most systems engineers, that, that's what they do. They figure out problems. They try to make it work better. They try and resolve things. You know, that's what that's the engineering brain. Now, and they're usually either imbued with deep analytical skills or creativity or both. And that's what I brought to the table. I, I took my systems analyst approach, where I take a very complicated problem and try and reduce it to something manageable that people understand. And I just seen it as the same problem. And I seen stuff that was largely unaddressed. I even found some rock art at the top of Ireland, uh, unaccounted for in 2007. And I just found that was extremely bizarre that that happened. Uh, and it was really important rock art, still largely forgotten about today. Um, and I'm the only one to address it from as far as I as far as I know. Um, However, um, how how good is it? Acoustics was it? It just it just followed on from that. I was I was very aware uh, at the same time as the astronomy research that the acoustics uh, of these monuments. So basically, think about these megalithic chambers. Let me just describe them for you. You have a megalithic chambered mound. Uh, there's a chamber on the inside, uh, a passageway to get to it, and a big, large dome-shaped mound over the top of it with rock and soil or stone uh, filling material making this dome shape. So uh, outside, around the curbstones or whatever, there's some sort of an astro- astronomical um, feature to this monument, uh, whether that's sun, moon, or stars. Um, so it's like an astronomical observatory on the outside. However, when you go into the inside, is a very, very sophisticated chamber. Take New Grange, for example, um, there's a corbel vaulted ceiling and then side chambers and it looks like a cathedral inside, very, very small one now, <laughs> very, very small one, um, maybe only f- to its peak inside, maybe 20 foot, uh, 30, 25 feet, something like that. Um, and side recesses are very, very small as well, but um, very, very sophisticated architectural wonders uh, to even engineer, to get a sunbeam, just for example, to get a sunbeam to penetrate the inside of this chamber, to go some 60 feet and hit the back of that chain exactly only on one day of the year a couple of days either side because it's a, that's just what happens in the width of the, the chamber but what they did was they meandered this chamber uh, the, the, the walkway going into the inner chamber was meandering left and right so that it would block the light from the doorway they didn't even need to put it to block the light from the doorway but then they put a special light box above the doorway um, and they ascended the, the pathway to reach the, the beam of light hitting the centre of it. This is like incredibly sophisticated engineering, actual surveying on a, on a sloping plateau um, to get this sun and beams, and it's still accurate, this sunbeam still comes in 5,000 years later, it hits that back of that chamber. Incredibly uh-huh. sophisticated. And when you look inside these chambers, and Newgrange is probably a great example, as Gavrini, each one is slightly different. And it doesn't make sense if, okay, you get the sunbeam to come in and do its thing. Why, why build all these different things? Um, and I was aware of these uh, acoustic um, uh, reverberations inside these chambers uh, and, and this area of research. So what I did was, I did the acoustics research alongside the astronomy, but I put it on the shelf for a long time. And I said to myself, I wasn't going to go around all these megalithic chambers uh, for five years and then go back and do it all again for the acoustics. So I did the acoustics research a lot. I made it was efficient. <laughs> I wasn't going to go around and, and double my, my travel plans. Um, but I found the yes, acoustics equally fascinating than the astronomy. Um, so that's why I did that, and I was very, very aware of it early on. Um, one reason I was aware of that was because of uh, Noth, for example, uh, that I mentioned. 
the artwork in notes uh, notes is a passage to him by the way um, longest passageways of Europe but it's in rich, rich in rock art something in, within the two mile radius of notes 45% of the rock art of the whole of Europe is there mm-hmm. just bear with that for a minute 45% of the rock art of the whole of Europe is sitting in a two mile radius around notes um, so incredibly privileged Ireland is to have so much rock art in one location never mind uh, I mean if you took the whole of Ireland probably at least half the rock art of Europe is in Ireland um, but this rock art is a bit confusing because people can't figure it out because um, they're not using science first of all um, but if you use science figure it out you'll find that it's got astronomical calculations sun, moon, um, some stars and stuff like that however there is another type of rock art known as entoptic phenomena and this rock art uh, is indicative of altered states of consciousness. Um, so, for example, I read Graham Hancock's Supernatural in 2006 when it was released, and when I opened it up, and I was doing the research, I happened to be doing the research at the time for the for the Chambers, and when I opened up Supernatural, uh, there was charts of this uh, altered states of consciousness rock art uh, from Lascaux, uh, Peshmerl, uh, 30,000 BC to the sand rock art people in, uh, in in South Africa, different periods of time, all linked up, uh, um, thousands of years in between these guys, but all showing the same art. And the same art is because when you go into an altered state of consciousness, uh, you go and see these uh, entoptic phenomena, these symbols and shapes and visions. Um, for example, lozenges, spirals, uh, chevrons, Circles, semicircles, floating circles, grids, squares, and there's about 40 maybe different entoptic images that you will see. So, to come back to the acoustics, one way of getting into an altered state of consciousness is be, to be acoustically induced. So, uh, the, the harp, for example, when you play the harp, it's known to induce uh, an altered state of consciousness that might even affect uh, depression and give you an inhalation uh, or acceleration uh, and they have done tests on this and proven this that it can cure, not cure depression but at least uh, alleviate uh, depression from an acoustically induced altered state of consciousness believe it or not um, so this is scientifically proven uh, not just in a practical sense but in, in the lab as well so that was the that was the the red herring for me. I was like, okay, well, they were obviously using acoustics. However, psychedelics and other compounds, uh, mushrooms, psilocybin, DMT, um, mascara, um, you know, blue lotus flower. I mean, this is another route into uh, altered states of consciousness, quite obviously. Um, and that may have been also something that I didn't want to rule out. However. I was finding that the acoustics of these ancient monuments, and I have my book coming out, The Megalith Acoustics Mystery, um, it's been on the shelf for a year because I've been waiting on other research to be published in academic papers, and, it, and only because I wanted to be done right. Uh, I was in a rush to publish the New Grain Series Mystery, but I'm not in a, published, a rush to publish this one because I want it to be done right, and I wanted, I, I'm doing this for research and posterity more than publishing a book. Um, However, the acoustics of these monuments, every time I go there, they're all being measured, and I've measured many in Ireland that weren't measured before. And they're all inside the male vocal range, and they all uh, show some aspects of deliberate acoustic design. I mean, they, they basically, if you think about a bottleneck, uh, a bottle with, the, with a long neck, and this bottleneck is a, known as a Helmholtz resonator, well, a passage chamber, uh, a passage tomb with a chamber in the middle is, is pretty much the same. There's a large chamber with a long neck or a long passageway to the outside. 
So it's it's like it's a Helmholtz resonator. Um, just by now, was this an accidental design feature, or was this a deliberate design feature? And what we see is variations in the internal structure of some of these chambers. There wasn't their standard. I think there was. There's a, there's a cruciform type chamber where a central chamber with a recess to the right, recess to the left, and a recess to the back. And what that does is that if you spoke inside the central chamber, your voice waves will go out in th- all directions. It will hit the three chambers and, and, three, and come and coalesce and come back again. And what happens is the, the sound waves coming back all interfere with each other and amplify each other or uh, cancel each other out. And we have strange acoustics going on inside. So, inevitably, I ended up going down the acoustics route for exploring these monuments because I was looking for answers to anything. No, I, I realised with my scientific and engineering skill set that nobody was addressing this stuff, and it took everybody from artisans to um, you know problem solvers to you know journalists to anything. Anybody has, is welcome to come to these monuments trying to figure them out because we need everybody we can get, and, and everybody's got their own type of critical thinking. And I just found that my critical thinking was a was a good skill set to at least figure out some of the sciencey stuff. And uh, the acoustics is there and it's measurable and it's rampant. I mean, uh, Mays Howe in Scotland is another fine example. It even uh, it even resonates between like four to seven hertz which is the theta frequencies, and that's where it really affects your brain waves. Uh, so you don't even hear that. It's like a deep rumble in your brain, and, and it will give you, it'll turn your brain to jelly, basically, and, and give you an altered state of consciousness, where it's like a relaxed sleep almost coming out. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, there, there are other ancient structures all over the world, maybe not uh, necessarily from the same time period as uh, you've been talking about. I think uh, Malta is uh, a, a good example that uh, mm. uh, uses acoustics to induce uh, mystical states. And I think that there is even uh, one in uh, the eastern United States in a, uh, a stone structure of you know, uh, unknown antiquity that uh, uses, uses the same phenomena. You know, Tim, you just you done something very, very, very pertinent to what my research is all about. When you mentioned Malta there, you must understand that the people who built Malta, and this is from a megalithic researcher, right? The people who built Malta and the hypergeme that you're talking about is the same people that built Newgrange in Ireland and Gabrinus in Brittany. However, if you ask somebody from Malta that are an archaeologist, they don't want to know. They don't want to touch it because they, they, they're, consi- they're very, very proud people, the Maltese, because they've had everybody there from the Phoenicians, the Romans, right through to the Knights Templars, they've had a history going back on that island right back to 4000 BC with Gigantia Temple and uh, and all the temples in Malta. They call them temples. In Ireland, we call them passage tombs. In Scotland, we, in England, they call them long barrows or barrows. Um, but they are all the exact same styled monument. And even if you go to Portugal, like, they call them whatever in Portuguese and they don't even talk to the people in Spain and the Spanish people don't talk to the people in Denmark and the Danish don't speak to the English. And it's like everybody's going around with their own country and, and Europe's incredibly confusing because we have 40 countries and not one of them talks to each other. They, they'd rather fight with each other than talk to each other. However, in terms of megalithic research, there's no central network or database for all these monuments to be look for commonalities. It's left to outsiders like me. However, just to draw a parallel, and this is important because I did this in the megalithic acoustics uh, mystery, um, I found this uh, incredibly bizarre that Malta is being treated as a separate case when it's clearly recognisably the same culture that built the megalithic chambers of, of Europe. 
Um, for example, the temples now have no roof on them, they're caved in, just as some of the megalithic passage tombs, they have the roofs caved in. So you have a recess to the back, a recess to the left, and a recess to the right. You have solstices and equinoxes shining sunbeams down to the back chamber. Okay, We have the spiral rock art uh, of Newgrange and the spiral uh, at Maltese uh, Tarjan Temple, for example. And then we have the same acoustics encoded into them, resonating these chambers. And it's just, there's hexagons and there's spiral patterns and, and, and uh, chevrons and the same uh, megalithic lintels as well. Um, but the hypogeum that you're referring to for the acoustics of Malta is probably the best example we have of an acoustic monument uh, of this megalithic Europe. Um, so Malta is probably dating far 4,000 to 3,000 BC. Um, so probably some of the earliest uh, temples of Malta was, uh, again, um, strange skulls found there as well, um, elongated skulls um, kept in a museum in a box and hidden from the public uh, in the Maltese Museum because they don't know what to do with them. Um, but this hypogeum in Malta that I, I, I've been there myself, and, and I'll tell you guys, this is the eeriest, most bizarre place I've ever been on the planet. Just in, in, in terms, not just in, in not because I was freaked out because it was a burial chamber, not that. It's just eerie and bizarre because of, I, you just, when you walk into the place, you are right smack back in 4000 BC looking at the mindscape of these people who built this stuff, going, what were you doing? What were you guys up to? It's like this is a three-story cave complex uh, carved into the bedrock. And as they go down each layer, they're carving rooms, and then they carve another room off another room. But here's the clever thing. They don't put a doorway into each room. Yes, there's a little tunnel system uh, and, a, and a, a meandering uh, corridor going round each layer and then down again, down another layer. Um, but each room has an oval window. And this is the acoustic part, this is the clever thing. By putting an oval window into each room, so you would have to go through an oval window to get into some of these rooms, it's acting like a bass box. Think of a, uh, a sound hole on a guitar. Um, that's, that's, that's an acoustic resonating box. So when, when you have a string over the, 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 the hole on a, on a guitar box, you strike the string, it vibrates outside and it resonates inside the box. It's exactly what happens inside the hypogeme, so that they even left a special little niche in the wall called the Oracle Hall. And when you uh, speak or arm or chant into the Oracle Hall, just give a ah like that, what happens is your sound waves goes into the hole and comes back out, and it coalesces with the same sound of the source. Um, and then it amplifies, and then it goes into all these different rooms. And you do it long enough, it builds up over time, and it creates this resonator, and it and it just keeps amplifying in decibels until the whole uh, three-story cave complex is just vibrating to your voice, like and uh, audible, like. And it, it, if you do it long enough, it will even affect your altered state of consciousness. Personally, I think these guys were going into altered states of consciousness, and, and and I think they were going to visit their ancestors, like these were guys. These guys were just to tell you. Uh, uh, Outside the acoustic function of this hypogeum complex, you have at the very, very bottom a 26-foot pit where all these skeletons were found uh, of over 5,000 people um, of all uh, walks of life, men, women, and children, and they seem to just go back to visit the ancestors' bones. Um, and, and it was like a resonator box, uh, this big deep pit at the bottom of this... Uh, 
complex. Um, incredibly fascinating, but bizarre that when you look at how they even carved it, they apparently didn't have any metal then, so they used ant picks, uh, uh, antlers p- uh, for picking the rock and carving it. But there is also uh, fractal patterns of hex- hexagonal geometry painted on the ceiling done with red ochre. There isn't even any known source of red ochre on the island and that really beggars belief because how can the Maltese people build this themselves, these original Maltese inhabitants, when they don't even have red ochre on the island? There's no known source. kind of tells you, well, maybe they were somewhere else and they got it from a different source or maybe they were uh, all originating or transferring their knowledge from somebody else. So, Well, let me ask you something about that, about Malta, okay? Um, you know, We'll be talking about the giants and all this sort of stuff. Are you familiar with the stories associated, some of the weirder stories associated with the hypogeum? The, uh, <laughs> I am. The, I the, hairy, the, hairy, the hairy giants, the missing school children, all that kind of stuff? I am, actually. I mean, you probably love this, Michael, this story. But I, I, I read the source material of what I could find on it. Um, yeah, but yeah. I, I don't know it whether national, it was in National Geographic. Yeah, and I don't don't know whether the person was having a vision or they actually witnessed this. People have apparently gone disappearing down there. Um, It's an incredibly controlled environment today. You must realise that now, Michael. I mean, when I went there, don't laugh, I actually got in on St. Patrick's Day, and it was by Fuluk. You have to book to see this thing six weeks in advance, because when you go visit the Hypogeum, they only let ten people in per hour. It's an hour tour. They let 10 people in per hour because the build-up of mildew and moss on the walls because of the breath and the condensation uh, really affects that. And they've got rock art down there they're trying to protect the place. So they only let 10 people in per hour and they only do an eight-hour day. I mean, one of the most visited monuments with a backlog of people to queue and to see it and they only open it for eight hours of the day instead of 10. But maybe that, again, is trying to, trying to limit the number of people to go in every day. So... Um, you're, you're, bringing, you're brought in on a tour, nobody speaks, you're giving a, like an earpiece to listen to, and you're not allowed, you're, there's a, like a metal walkway, uh, so you don't walk on, you, you're not, you don't touch the, the floor of this, a suspended walkway, and you, you walk around this hall and you're giving this guided tour, and it's eerie, because you're, you're in there with ten people and nobody's speaking, and everybody's looking at you, they're going, this is weird, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's yeah, shocking yeah. awe on everybody's face, um, and, you know, so it's incredibly protected, and, it's, uh, and, and you don't get in, and you don't get out. I mean, I, I went there, I didn't even know there was a six-week waiting list until I went to the door. And you know what, I, I turned up, at the la- it was St. Patrick's Day, it was a Sunday as well, and uh, I was at Tarjan Temple about two miles away, and I said, you know what, I don't have a ticket, but I'll just walk in, I'll try and blag my way, I'll, I'll tell him a lie, I'll tell him I had a ticket and I lost it, and I'll give him a sub story, and I might just wingle my way in. And uh, I got there, and some German lady jumped out of a Merc. She her tour was cancelled, and she goes, "I got ten tickets. Does anybody want them?" And they were gone. Oh, wow. with, were gone within six minutes. I couldn't believe my look, the look of the Irish and St. Patrick's Day. I tell you. There you go. But yeah, I feel yeah. privileged to have seen that place. I really do because it's 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 such a high tech engineered. Not only is the acoustic sophisticated, but it's just incredibly over-engineered. I mean, and when I say over-engineered, I mean, think of a megalithic monument. Say you have two upright stones and a lintel. Um, they carved the bedrock to look like that. They reverse-carved the inside of these... Uh, uh, this, it's all one piece of solid rock that's been hollowed out. But they hollowed it out in such a way that it looks like it's megalithic uh, temple outside. So they carved it to look like the, the man-made blocks of uh, stuff above the ground. 
although it's one piece of solid rock. So, um, you'd have to look at pictures of that. If you just Google image pictures of hypogene, you'll see how eerie this place looks. Right. Now, well, the, the, well, the story goes that this field trip, uh, a busload of children was taken down there by a teacher, a school teacher, <laughs> and they disappeared. They got lost and they disappeared. And they said for up to two weeks afterward that their screams and crying and wailing were heard all over the island in because the whole island is honeycombed with caverns. Mm-hmm. And here's the question that people have always asked. First of all, how did they all get lost? And how did they survive in total darkness and not starve to death and have enough strength to scream for two weeks? Mm-hmm. That, Very strange, isn't it? Last thing I was trying yeah. to do that you're, you're incredibly protected when you're down there and you're, you're walked around this little metal walk where you don't, and it's a barrier, like, I mean, you can't jump over it. You know, there's some rooms you actually can't even get into, you can only peer around the corner. Um, right. but it's incredibly protected, um, so there's, there's no way, uh, off this little beaten track that you're just walked around and, well, and This was a, this event actually was, was a news event at the time and it, it was, uh, written about in National Geographic, it was in the 1920s. And, uh, you know, I mean, it is, it actually did happen and they could hear these people, these children for up to two weeks down in there, you know, down beneath the entire island. And so I guess they were stumbling around in the dark mm-hmm. and really horrible. But then around the same time, there was somebody that claimed that they, uh, had an encounter with a giant, with a giant, hairy giant in one of these tunnels. So there's a lot of really strange stuff, um, associated with these, uh, with Malta, I guess yeah. you could say. Yeah, I wondered did because uh, it's been incredibly uh, protected since that event. I mean, they don't they just they they really regulate the people that goes in there. I mean, um, they don't even let researchers in, uh, Michael. So, you know, did did they wander off the beaten track down there and get lost down some secret chamber and then go into the honeycomb caverns? Perhaps. I mean, I'm open to that. Um, but respect to the somebody has apparently seen ten full creatures down there. Um, yeah. Uh, now, when that happened, that would have happened before the walkway was put in as well, when you were let roam around the place. Uh, right. how, how that place actually goes down, when you, when you get down into the very, very bottom of it, this is where the 26-foot deep pit is. Uh, now, I think this, the, the skulls and the bones have been removed for uh, research, but, I mean, uh, I think... I yeah, think yeah, you didn't really go into that. Tell, tell, people, tell our listeners how many... How, how many remains were eventually found when they first 5, discovered the site? 5,000. 5,000 remains. Now, wow. it tells you they were... It, that's why it's, a, it's like a, a hypogeme. It's, it's, it's a... It's a... It's incredibly... Uh, personally, I think it's a respect for the dead. I don't think this was like a, a ritual place for any bad deeds. I think it was. Uh, they, they used to visit their ancestors and show... Uh, deep respect for them and I think they were mourning them and, and, and I think they were right-brained creatures to have this musical acoustics knowledge I, th- I just can't see you having that to be in um, to doing bad ritual things so and there's people thought that that's what that was for but there's no signs for any of that I think the 5,000 skulls went down there because and, and the bones where it was like their resting place and this is why it's slightly different to the megalithic chambers of Europe because in Europe 
what they did was they cremate they cremated people outside obviously not inside because it takes so many trees to cremate a body so they cremated the ashes of the dead outside and brought them in in ceremonial urns special pottery that they made with zigzag and patterns and all on it and there's a lot of these urns still survive today this neolithic pottery and uh, so they bring in these ashes of the dead and they put them in ceremonial bowls Michael, inside these megalithic chambers, especially Newgrange, has got some of these bowls. What way? And I'll tie this back to Malta. Some of these bowls, these ceremonial bowls, weigh a ton. They're like a one-ton piece of giant concave bowl that's sitting inside these recesses. Now Newgrange still has them in place. Note is, a, is, is in place as well, and Dose, another one uh, beside Newgrange, and some of these are actually, the, the, the anomaly is that they, they're so big, you couldn't get them down the passageway. They actually were put in place on the mound built around these ceremonial bowls. So they, they bring these bowls of ash inside and put them in these big giant stone bowls in these recesses. But Malta has these as well. They're, they're like one ton... I, I actually have a photo of a passage tomb in Wicklow in Ireland uh, with a triangular... It's like, a, picture a, a giant triangular piece of uh, slab curved in the belly and the bottom of it until it's it got a, like a bowl. It's like a triangular shaped uh, bowl with a, a circular depression in the bottom of it. And it's the exact same at Tarjan Temple. You couldn't tell them apart if I showed you two photos. So, they even had the same ceremonial bowls in these recesses. So, these guys were incredibly respectful for the dead. And I, and I think that they just, they didn't have a taboo about death like we did, Michael. They went in there to visit their ancestors. And perhaps they went in on solstices when they, uh, people think that they, they were going into these megalithic times in Europe because they were going to visit their dead uh, or, or, or with the ashes uh, on these special days when the sunbeam would come in um, and they would have uh, some sort of a, either a astrological function to it because they had different days of the year quartered out or, or sectioned out. And that they would go in and the soul would be taken away with the light. Maybe just maybe that's true or not. That doesn't really matter. Right, that's maybe right. what that's maybe what they felt. But well, I'm just feeling that the that the that the bodies were, even if it was part of a, a, a fun, you know a funerary ritual, that they weren't mm-hmm. taken down there to provide sustenance to whatever else people have been seeing down there down, down in that cave system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think it was uh, it was just a way of stockpiling their ancestors, basically, down there. Um, however, I mean, the, the, some of the skulls that have been dug up have been uh, elongated as well. Um, I think uh, that's... I don't know if that's been in ancient aliens or not now, Michael, but uh, you may look into that. I think Giorgio Tsoukalos uh, in Search of Aliens, his episode showed, if I'm not mistaken, the elongated skulls from, from the Hypergeme in Malta. Um, and that's the only footage I've never known to exist of these. Um, they've been sitting there for 100 years. They were discovered in 1908 or something like that, and they've been sitting for yeah. about 100 years um, because they don't want them on public display. And they're just too weird and, and too anomalous. And, uh, Always they, the case. <laughs> they call it Pisepolis or whatever it is. They, they say it was a disease, but if, if a skull is, is, is this deformed with a genetic disorder, it doesn't grow symmetrically, repeatedly. In through the whole civilization, you know, it's they're too commonplace, and that's why I think this Nephilim element is to these megalithic chambers, and that's why I say, you know, link up Malta with the rest of it. It's the same thing, the same companies, the same builders, the same style, the same everything, you know, the same art, the same alignments. It's the same same element going on at these. Mm-hmm. 
Well, okay then. Well, that that uh, gives us the big question here: is uh, you know, uh, what does archaeology today uh, make of the new theories like the one that, you, that that we've been talking about today? They largely ignore it. Um, it's the only thing they do. They don't want to know. They want to concentrate on the stones and the bones um, in their own status quo. Status quo. Their own little methodology, and they. It's bizarre because. They're, they're being surpassed. Archaeology is being surpassed, and this is not for all archaeologists because there's some great archaeologists out there and pioneers. As a matter of fact, uh, Michael J. O'Kelly, one of the archaeologists for Newgrange uh, and other monuments, uh, did actually pioneer the archaeoastronomy because he said, "Well, this obviously has some sort of a solar function to it." Um, so, in that respect, to draw homage to that, I mean, there are good archaeologists out there as well as. Ignorant, well, I won't say bad ones, but ignorant ones. Um, and it's not to speak disparagingly of archaeology, but they do, for the better part, all maintain the status quo. And um, but the way things have gone in the last twenty years, guys, we don't we don't need them. I mean, they're be, they are being surpassed because a very good reason because they're not needed um, for archaeoastronomy and they're not needed for the acoustics. I mean, it seems maddening and strange in a way. Look at Egypt, for example, a fine example. Egyptologists are in control of the Egyptian uh, heritage. Um, however, it seems crazy that you won't bring engineers or astronomers in to look at engineered monuments or astronomically aligned monuments. It just seems bizarre that they don't do that. They bring Egyptologists in. Um, look, look for example, with the, the, the Sphinx, for example, and the redating of the Sphinx by Dr. Robert Shock and John Anthony West and, and the collaborated effort they, they made for that case. Um, Egyptologists got together to prove them wrong because they believed their Egyptology to be right. And then they started to um, determine the geology for themselves. They're not geologists. That's why Dr. Robert Schock was brought on board by John Anthony West, because he wanted a, a reputable um, geologist to, to stake his claim on it, and he did, and he was very successful with that. And, 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 and all the geologists stand by Dr. Robert Schock on the redating of the Sphinx. However, why is Egyptologists dabbling, dabbling in geology? I mean, yep. it's, just, it's, it's maddening, and they're, they're, to be honest with you, they're just probably most, uh, they're the most maddening group of all, if you wanted to pick on somebody. But archaeology, again, across the board, um, you know, in the same respect, they, they don't bring in the outsiders, the engineers or the scientists or the mathematicians. If you see geometry at all these hinges, it just seems, it just seems crazy that, you know, you don't attribute uh, some sort of a, um, the sophistication to these guys, you know, they're, they're painted as, you know, a couple of dummies that were out there just shifting a bit of earth, playing around with a few things and making these tombs. And they concentrate on the tomb function, and whether it's Egypt or Ireland or anywhere else. <laughs> well, um, unfortunately, we are almost out of time here, so uh, why don't you... Uh, uh, let our audience know uh, where they may be able to find more information about you online, uh, where they can find your books, uh, that sort of thing. Oh, sure. Well, I think the best site is uh, jameswagger.com. That's two Gs, jameswagger.com. You'll find everything I do there. And then Capricorn Radio as well. Uh, you can YouTube that um, or capricornradio.com will take you to the archives, the free archives anyway. Um, and, uh, yeah, I do a 
uh, podcasts as often as I can, as much as I can, and on shows like yourselves. You know, I had you on before, Tim and Michael separately. Great shows I did there, and I, I like to pursue everything. Uh, there's, there's research that I like to get into, but I, I, I'll never write about it. And there's research I like to get into that I will want to write about. Um, and I talk everything from Egyptology, astronomy, alternative science, alternative health, spirituality, UFOs. I'll talk about anything because I just love where we are in terms of alternative research these days. I just love it. And I think that the human race um, is going to just propel itself in sort of, hopefully, in some sort of a journey of discovery and just keeps going. And I think in the last 20 years, an alternative history movement or an alternative science movement is, is well underway and well established. Because um, 20 years ago, it was really different, really quite different. There was a few pioneers um, that started all this, and, and it's now grown into... I don't think we need to drop our brains out either. I think we need to keep on track with with science and archaeology. Uh, but I think they need to run side by side now. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Yep, but, that's right. Yep. We sure appreciate you being on the show, James. Oh, it's great it's to talk great to you. discussion. Really, really pleasurable. Thank, thank you, guys. Stay warm, man. And... Uh, um, Visit the st- distillery for me. <laughs> I'll have one for you, with, uh, Michael, for sure. No problem. All right. All right, <laughs> uh, all right gentlemen. Well, uh, James, thank you uh, again for uh, being with us on The Outer Edge. Uh, Mike, uh, you have a, a great rest of your week. You too, man. All right, and so everyone out there listening, thank you very much uh, uh, for being with us tonight. Uh, You've been listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. Be sure to tune in uh, this time next week for another interesting show. So from uh, everyone uh, here in the uh, studios, thank you and good night. (laughs) 